Hey, thanks for, for asking, Jim. I'm Sam Taylor. I'm an alcoholic. And Jim says, I'm in the United States. I am in located in Maryland, southern Maryland, about uh, 65 miles from the nation's capital of Washington, D.C., if that helps anybody. I don't know whether it does or it doesn't. But anyhow, you know, I'm glad to have be afforded the opportunity to share with you what it was like what happened and what it's like now. You know, I uh, I am the youngest of seven children, and uh, and it's only two of us left. My our younger sister, well, my sister next to me, and myself. And uh, I grew up during the the era of uh, World War II. I was born in nineteen thirty seven. So uh, my first memories as a younger person was uh, when World War II started and the area that we lived in, we had, uh, the government took it over to make a military base out of it. So we had to relocate to a, uh, to another, to an adjacent county. But nevertheless, my childhood when I look back on it now as an 86-year-old adult, and as I look back on it now and as I can remember it, it was considered to be normal for that generation. You know, and, and when I'm saying normal for that generation, I'm, I'm talking in terms of everybody uh, that I knew in the community because we lived in a rural area. And it was one of those situations where you hear a lot of people talk about nowadays, it takes a village to raise a child or something of that sort. But that was true back then because uh, as you were growing up, everybody knew everybody. And everybody, especially the adults, had automatic permission to correct you if you were doing or saying something wrong with no questions asked. You know, it wasn't, uh, and then when they told my mother about it, or any other mother told another mother about that child, they didn't question it one moment. They took it for face value. So that was the type of uh, community I grew up in, specifically in the home now. I came out of a a loving home, but it wasn't a affectionate home. And when I'm saying it wasn't affectionate, you didn't, people didn't talk about, parents didn't talk about I love you and that sort of thing. And to give you a good idea of the impact on it, uh, of it, I shook my mother's hand until I was in my 30s. And when I was in my 30s, by that time, because my dad had died early on, he died in 1948, and uh, my mother remarried. And when she, because I never saw any affection between my mother and father, and uh, my mother remarried. And when she remarried, if I think about five years later, her new husband was an affectionate sort of a person. But anyhow, uh, uh, that was that was the type of uh, that was the type of environment that I came out of. So so as a result, uh, I uh, had a problem developing relationships because of the fact of uh, of, of the lack of uh, expressed love. But nevertheless, that didn't make me an alcoholic. It didn't cause me to drink. And I was considered a pretty much an average student in school. Uh, the courses that I should have really put some effort into trying to to uh, master the the uh, mathematics and science and those sort of things, I did enough to get through. But I loved the courses like history and English literature. You know, I would score those things out. The others, I would just barely scrape my butt going through them. And I never really spent no time uh, in trouble 
I've never been in a fight in my life. I've never struck anybody in anger in my life. Although I have been angry enough to have hurt people, but I've never struck anyone in anger. So, uh, so that's a little bit about the, the type of background I come out of. As far as alcohol is concerned, my father, the only time I remember seeing him drink would be during the winter time and, uh, and usually around Thanksgiving when they would go out hunting and they would come back from hunting and cold and all that sort of thing. And they would have the hot toddies. And I'm certain you drunks know what a hot toddy is. But in case you don't, but what it was back in that day is no more than whiskey mixed with hot water and sugar. And, uh, and that's what they would sip on. Uh, during the summertime, I would see him occasionally drink a can of beer. Now, my mother, I probably drank more in one day than she drank in a whole lifetime because uh, she would she would try to be social at some of those functions. And she would get her hot toddy and it would be the same amount in the glass when she quit as it was when she started because she would just put the glass up to her lips and let it touch her lips, and that was it. So, so drinking was, uh, you know, was something that grown-ups did. But as I got older, of course, I wanted to experiment to see what this drinking thing was about, because that's what I wanted to do. And uh, the, the, the most readily available alcohol around, well, I wouldn't say alcohol, the most readily available booze around, because we didn't call it alcohol in those days. That's something I just started calling it in recent years in recovery. You know, it was liquor, a wine, a beer. You know, and uh, what we had was a lot of homemade wine, just about all of the families, all of the families in, in the community made some type of homemade wine. You know, if it was something that they could ferment, they made wine out of it. So uh, my first drink of any type of beverage was a homemade wine. And I kind of liked it because it was sweet. And I don't remember having any particular impact from it whatsoever. So, uh, okay, that's what it's about. It kept moving along. Later on in teen years, I uh, experimented with uh, whiskey and beer. I didn't like beer because it tastes too damn bad. And whiskey was too strong and it burned. So I had no taste or no desire to do anything in the drinking line uh, uh, as, a young, as a young person. And the community I come out of, like I said, is pretty much a farming community at that time. And the chances of getting a job and having some type of career was slim and none. And especially back in the 50s, and we're talking about those folk of you who might be familiar with what Jim Crow is in the United States or was in the United States. The Jim Crow area was alive and well. If you're not familiar with it, if it's a person of color, specifically black Americans, you were considered less than second-class citizens and you were prohibited from doing a variety of things, including get the decent education because uh, all of our, all of uh, everything that we had was handed down to our school from a white school. But nevertheless, we got educated and that sort of thing. But anyhow, as I was, uh, and my, also I forgot to mention, my family was very, very religious. Whenever the church door opened, mom and dad or one of the both were always in the church. And the only thing that I thought about the church that was a good thing for me was when they had the Easter egg things and the Christmas things, you know, I, because they had candy. You know, I look forward to going to church on that. But as far as the religious bit part, ever since I can remember when I was uh, 
big enough to begin to read and understand the Bible, I had a rebellion against what it was that I had been taught all those years. So as a result, I said, as soon as I can get the hell out of this hick town and away from all these religious zealots where you got to go to church every night and pray and all of that crap, the better off I'm going to be. So I just joined the Navy. And uh, lo and behold, in the process of joining the Navy, one of the questions that they asked me after I had joined is what is your religion? I said, uh, I don't have a religion. They said, well, you've got to have a religion. I said, nope, don't have a religion. They said, well, we've got to put something down here for you in case you get killed, they'll know what kind of rights to sell for you. And I didn't know what the hell no, no rights are. And they said, well, what are you, Protestant or Catholic? And I'm 18 years old, and that's the first time I'd heard either one of them words, Protestant or Catholic, and didn't know what neither one of them meant at the time. And I said, not knowing, I said, well, what, what does it mean? And the guy attempted an explanation. I said, well, I guess I'm a Protestant. I don't know. And I'm not interested. But, but anyhow, I'm thinking I'm getting away from religion. And I joined the Navy. Like I'm saying, now I'm in the Navy. I said, okay, now I don't have to be forced to go to this shit. And lo and behold, the very first Sunday in basic training, we all had to get up and go march to church. And they divided us as to Catholics and Protestants. And if you didn't know, they put you in the Protestant group. And you march, and we did that the first three Sundays. The first three Sundays were in basic training. We had to, we had to, we were forced to go to church. After the third week, it was optional on Sundays whether you went to church or not. And of course, I did not go to church. But into my Navy bitsy, alcohol for me, booze for me was a non-issue. Like I said, I didn't care for it. I didn't like the taste of it. And, and I would, we'd get off from work during the day and, and the guys would always want to go by the club and for happy hour. Being a country boy, I didn't and a non-drinker, I had no clue what a hell a happy hour was. That's what these guys were going by and drinking pitchers of beer. And I uh, struggled hard at trying to acquire a taste for draft beer or any beer. And one of the guys said, well, why don't you put some salt in it? That will help the taste a little better. And look, that's what I did. I put a little salt in it and I was able to uh, drink a little bit of the better of the, of the, of the draft beer. But that was a non, you know, drinking for me was still a non-issue for many a year. I could, I could take it or leave it. I am, I am basically like what they talk about in the, in the big book. You know, I, uh, was, I was a social drinker for years, many, many years, through my 20s and into my 30s and even into my 40s for that early 40s. You know, I could take it or leave it. It just didn't, it just didn't make a difference. And one of the things about it was, is after I retired from the military, my drinking began to change. And that's when, uh, that's when I started drinking more than I had normally been drinking. See, because the whole time I was in the military, I, I just didn't, I didn't understand these guys that uh, wanted to go to the club on a Monday afternoon or Monday at noon. I didn't understand people who drank during the week because reverting back to my, remembering my childhood, the only time I ever saw grown-ups drink was always on the weekends or it was a holiday. I never recall seeing anybody drinking during the work week. So I never, I didn't understand these people who were drinking in the evenings during the work week. 
And I definitely didn't understand these people who drank during the day, especially at, at noon, when they would go to the club for lunch or something, they'd be drinking. You know, none of that made sense to me whatsoever. But of course, it did years later. So again, my drinking started on a uh, increased on a regular basis, not because of any childhood trauma, not because of uh, of uh, uh, something somebody did to me later on in life. It was because I had a, began to acquire a taste for alcohol, and my my drink of choice was malt scotch, blended scotch. That was my drink of choice. And then I, I began to acquire a taste for beer. And I couldn't, I didn't like anything cold, so I liked a lukewarm beer. And for your beer drinkers, I don't want you to gag over that. Because all of the beer drinkers that I knew, how in the world you drink that stuff warm? I said, because it tastes good. Now, all of a sudden, it tastes good. And, and my drinking began to expand into, uh, into my uh, late 30s and into my 40s. And again, uh, like the, the book Alcoholics Anonymous, and they talk about the progression of alcoholism, I definitely went from that social drinker who, who drank whenever to a steady drinker who began to participate in these afternoon uh, uh, happy hours and then these lunch hours, these nooners as we used to call them. And from that, I, I progressed into becoming a heavy drinker. And as I became, you know, that, you know, I didn't see it at the time that it was happening because, uh, all of the things that I said that I wouldn't do for the drinking bit, like during the day and uh, during the work week and all that stuff, that became normal after a while. Because I began to do that. And then from an alcoholic drinker, I mean, from a heavy drinker, it was just a, a tiptoe step into alcoholism as I know it today. And it became, it got to the point where I was drinking not because it was something I wanted to do. I was drinking because it becomes something that I had to do. And, and I uh, never made an effort to stop drinking even during the worst days of my alcoholism, I never made an effort to stop. I had always made lots of efforts to modify and control my drinking again, like I used to do. And, uh, and I would, I would uh, listen to older folk talk about, well, if you drink light liquor, during the hot months, you won't get sick and you won't get as high as as high. And uh, and light liquor being the, the the gins, the uh, vodkas, the white rums, and that sort of thing. And said so when the weather gets cold, that's when you go back to your dark liquors, you know, the bourbons and the scotches and the dark rums. You know, and nevertheless, I found that all that shit, whether it was light or dark, whether it was cold or, or hot outside, you drink enough of it, you got boozy. And and I was an alcoholic who did not like to get drunk. Even when I drank socially, I did not like to get drunk. And as I sit here today to tell you, to the best of my memory, I have spent years going back over my drinking. <clears throat> and to the best that I could remember, I've only deliberately set out to go get drunk. Maybe, maybe at the most a half a dozen times. 
maybe at the most a half a dozen times. And only two of them come to mind. Uh, two of them come to mind uh, today. And, and one time I've set out deliberately to get drunk is uh, a young lady, uh, my, first, uh, my first wife. And uh, when she had sent me a letter and I was out on a cruise and had been gone out on this cruise for quite some time, I think like about seven or eight months on the cruise. And she sent me a letter saying she was pregnant. And uh, I'm saying, oh, boy, this shows a long while for her to tell me that she's pregnant. I've been gone for about six, seven months. But at any rate, then the follow-up letter to that was uh, the kapoops for the, for the marriage. And, and I made a deliberate effort to go out to get drunk. The next time that I made a that I can remember making a deliberate effort to go out to get drunk was when I retired from the military, the Navy, in 1974. And uh, the date of my retirement after I picked up my, uh, my mustering out papers and all of that bit, and I ran into a couple of the guys that used to work for me when I was on my way out of the office. And they said, Chief, what are you going to do today? Now that you're a civilian, I said, I'm going to go get shit-faced. That's what we call it in the military. You know, getting drunk, they say, you're going to go get shit-faced. I said, well, I'm going to go get shit-faced. That's what I'm going to do. But beyond those two instances, I don't recall ever setting out to get drunk. And But I will tell you, I sure got drunk a whole hell of a lot more times than that that I didn't set out to get. Because that's what was happening with my drinking as it began to accelerate. And as I uh, began to progress into my second career, because by the way, I had a very successful military career. So as I moved into my second career, drinking, I thought drinking was a tradition in the military, but doggone. It was just as much a tradition in the, in the civilian world as it was in the military world. And, and my drinking increased. And now all of a sudden I am becoming concerned that some of the things that, uh, that I enjoyed doing, I had enjoyed doing, I began to slack off doing them. An example is crossword puzzles. You know, I love doing crossword puzzles. I used to have anywhere from 10 to 15 different crossword puzzle booklets at any given time. And I could sit there and, and just work on those things for, for hours on end and listen to uh, jazz music. You know, I enjoyed doing that because, see, I am one of them types, still am. See, I can be alone without being lonely. I enjoy being alone, but I am never ever lonely in that respect because I'd always had uh, some reading material or some music or something of that sort. So I was finding out, and then I was also very active in my community. I belonged to a number of different organizations, uh, community civic organizations within the community got involved in politics there at one time back in the uh, late 70s and the early 80s and was involved in the campaign for the local sheriff's race in our county. And he got the guy that I was supporting and working for, he won the election. But, but nevertheless, uh, my alcohol intake continued to increase and and all of these things that I was used to doing you know I began to slack off of them I began to find that drinking was beginning to become more important than going to these meetings 
and participating into these events and that sort of thing. And as a result of that, I began, that's when I started trying to modify my drinking. And, and as a good drunk I was, to modify my drinking didn't mean cutting back on it. It meant switching brands, just like the big book talked about. You know, I would switch nights, get wine, uh, commercial wine. I had never cared for it, but I found myself drinking wine, thinking that that was going to uh, be a be of help. And the only thing it was is that I would have to drink a half a gallon of wine to get the same buzz that I would get drinking three or four drinks. And that was the same thing with beer. You know, I used to drink the beer because, I, like I said, I had acquired a taste for beer by then. And I would drink the beer as a starter, working my way up to the evening when I would drink the hard stuff. And my hard stuff of choice was uh, vodka. And the reason I got into the vodka, the guys were saying, well, they can't smell it on you. But if the police pull you over, nobody can smell it. And I found out that was one of the many big lies that I had uh, that I had uh, uh, encountered during my drinking career, because that was what I was drinking the night that the police officer, uh, the Maryland State Trooper, was a real nice fellow. You know, he followed me all the way home and waited until I backed up into my driveway. And then he turned his light on and came up and arrested me for driving under the influence. And I'm here to tell you, folk, I was guilty as hell. So I had I had no defense. But I had I was, you know, looking back on it now, you know, I could see where I was developing the alcoholics mind. You know, and I'm telling myself, okay, the drinking didn't cause me to get this DWI. What caused it is I sat down and I thought it through. This was early on a Tuesday morning, like 2.30 or something, 2.15, 2.30 Tuesday morning, which meant that it was a Monday night. And I was leaving my favorite watering hole. And uh, the only car on the road was me. I don't know where the hell this Maryland State Trooper came from. And I was only about maybe a dozen blocks from home. And uh, and again, like I said, he gave me the ticket. So what I did came up with, I said, okay, it wasn't my drinking. It was because of the fact that I was out there at 2.15, 2.30 on a Tuesday morning. And there's no other cars on the road. So that was why I got the ticket. So I'm just fine being drunk as a pissant. But because of the fact I'm out there, not because I was drinking, but because I was out there. So my decision was, okay, rather than stay out until the bars close up, I'll just go in early, which I did. You know, I started rather than having to run the risk of getting the DWI, another one. You know, I would start going home earlier at night or drinking more at home. And that was the only uh, only incident that I had with the law enforcement for, for DWI. And, and I must admit that at the time I got, I think that was in 19, oh, good gracious, 1984, 1985, 1980, somewhere in the mid-1980s. But but uh but that didn't stop me. All that did was just stop me from being out there late at night. And and as most drunks, the drinking increased to the point that uh now it was beginning to affect my health somewhat. Because the doctor because I'd always had a uh the doctors used to call it a nervous stomach. But I found out years later I had an ulcerated stomach. 
And so I always had had that 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 stomach that uh sometimes didn't cooperate with me. But as my drinking increased, I got to the point where I couldn't live without it and I couldn't live with it. You know, I would get up in the morning and I would have to have a couple of drinks, hopefully just one, to get me started. And, and that one drink was to, uh, one or two drinks was to stop me shaking because I used to shake like a leaf on a tree in a windstorm. And I would be like this early in the morning. And I would have to take that drink, I would have to take that drink to stop from shaking so that I could shave, brush my teeth, get ready to go to work. And, you know, that was, that was absolutely insane when I look back on it. Most mornings, I won't say most mornings, a lot of mornings, it only took that first drink to get me calmed down enough so I could take the second drink. But a lot of mornings was, is that first drink did not stay down. I would have to take two drinks. Because that first one would go down and the stomach say, I'm not ready for you yet. And of course, I became very friendly and familiar with the uh, the porcelain guard. You know, I hugged that quite frequently early in the mornings. And then I would have to take that second drink. And that one uh, almost always stayed down. And then from that point on, it would dictate to, the shaking would dictate how much more I'd have to drink to stop from shaking. And... That was that was the type of uh, condition that I had drank myself into, but I did not consider myself being an alcoholic. All I considered myself was is that maybe I was drinking a little bit too much, and maybe I should slack off of drinking. And uh, of course, I had a lot of help from my wife by this time. You know, she was suggesting things like, why don't you just just try to drink beer? Or why don't you just try to drink booze one day and beer the next day or whatever? Of course, that didn't work. And also, she was not only helpful, but she was also very disgusted and disappointed in me because of the, the lifestyle that I was beginning to live. I was becoming, had become uh, reckless with the money. And I can remember that was once or twice where I didn't pay the, uh, I left home to go put the, put the mail in the box to pay the mortgage. And of course the mail never got to the box and the mortgage never got paid. So there were a couple of three instances or so where the mortgage was a month or two behind. So one of the things, being retired from the military, I had a pension. So my alcoholic mind told me, said, well, what you can do now is instead of having your wife be worried about whether you're going, I was remarried for the second time by this time, by the way. I had remarried, but uh, I said, what you should do? And I told my wife, I said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. You go to another bank, the same bank, and set up your own checking account. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to have my retirement check go directly to your account. And that way, you can be sure you have the money to pay the mortgage and the household bills. And when she was working, she had the money. It's just that, uh, and I was working. And, uh, and I patted myself. She agreed to that, of course. And I patted myself on the back for being so considerate. And it did not dawn on me until after I was in Alcoholics Anonymous, 
And after I was doing something with the steps, that how irresponsible that was of me to do something like that and then think that I am walking on water because I've done something so great. But those were, that was the type of, uh, that was the type of mindset that I had. That during my heavy drinking days, my alcoholic drinking days, I did not, I was never canceled about drinking on the job. I never lost a job because of the boss or somebody came up and said you were drinking on the job, but I drank on the job every day. However, the boss never told me that you got to go. Booze told me I had to go on two good paying jobs. And I gave those two jobs up and both of them were union jobs, paying above wages for, for what the other people were doing in the, in the workforce who weren't union, considerably above their wages. And the reason I gave up the first union job, because it interfered with my, it was a, I was going in at midnight to seven in the morning. And getting up at midnight interfered with my drinking. I was not able to, to control my drinking enough to go to work at midnight. So I would go to work and I would just be absolute wreck. And I said, well, the best thing for me to do is get me go back and get me another daytime job. So I gave that job up. And I got a day daytime job, of course, making less money, but it was more conducive to my lifestyle as a as a booze hound. But but anyhow, longer story to make it shorter is that yeah, alcohol took me right down to the right down to the doorstep. You know, I didn't have any uh, last big drunk, but what happened was I just didn't like me. I'd gotten to the point that I didn't like me at all. And as a result of not liking me, you know, I, I, I was beginning to, I had already begun to neglect my hygiene and uh, neglect all responsibilities and everything. So, so uh, the, the, I guess you would say the rock bottom. What got me into treatment was that this was in uh, 1990. Yeah. Our youngest daughter had gone into the service and she was graduating from basic training in January of 91, 1991. And uh, my wife and uh, one of the daughters and her husband, they were going to go to Orlando, Florida to her graduation. And uh, and here me, I'm thinking that, okay, boy, this will be a great fun trip because I don't have to do any driving this time because I'd driven down previously to one of the other daughters who had graduated from boot camp. That was before my drinking had gotten bad. But anyhow, on this particular trip, my oldest daughter, their husband had just bought a van and they were going to drive down. And all I could think about was that, uh, hey, I can just sit back in this van and drink all the way down, didn't have to worry about driving or nothing. And I happened to mention to my wife, I said, uh, you know, by the way, what time are we leaving to go to, uh, go down to Florida, Orlando? And what day we leaving? And she said, she stopped doing it. I don't know what she was doing, but whatever it was, she stopped doing it. And she turned around and she gave me a look that I never forgot until this day. And she said, what do you mean we? Said nobody could be hauling a drunk up and down the road. Boy, was I pissed. I was at the point right then, I was so mad that I could have slapped her. And like I said, I never hit anybody in my life. Just was one time I wanted to hit her. And when she said that, that was a turning point. I knew I had to go do something about my drinking. And that's when I uh, 
went into a re- rehabilitation. That was a program at a Army Medical Center here in Washington, D.C. And this program was just was designed for, for retired military personnel you know, who had alcohol problems. And I went through that program and it was my introduction to Alcoholics Anonymous. And through that program, I was introduced to the 12-step program. See, I wasn't completely ignorant of AA because by the time I got there and uh, went to the rehab in uh, February, because my last drink was February the 1st, 1991. By the time I got there, yeah, I'd had an older brother who had been in pro- who was in the program for nine years, and I had an older sister who was in the program. I don't remember how many years she had, but I knew it was more than my brothers. So uh, they never talked. Neither one of them never talked much about it, but I knew that AA existed because uh, my wife used to ask me about getting in contact with AA and being a good before I quit drinking, yeah, I would lie. I say, yeah, I call the AA office and nobody is there. Uh, the office is closed. Oh, they won't be open until tomorrow after two o'clock. And most of the time, I never even picked up the phone to call. And once or twice, two times that I did call and somebody answered the phone, you know, I dropped it like a hot potato as soon as they said Alcoholics Anonymous. I dropped the phone like a hot potato and hung up. But nevertheless, I went through the rehab program and they told me when you get back to when you get back to where you come from, because we had people from all over the United States, at least the eastern part of the United States. And uh, they said, when you get back to where you come from, uh, make sure you go to a meeting. And that was really when I went into went to started going to and they talked about, uh, can you guys see me? Because I'm not able to see myself. I don't know whether my, my. Uh, yes, we see you. It's something, it's something going on with my Wi-Fi or something. Oh, you're, you're perfect. We've got uh, n- no interruptions at all. It's, it's been smooth. Okay, then I'm just going to, let me cut this thing off. So that won't distract me. Okay, but as I was as I was saying is that was when I was introduced to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and also like I said, I had been introduced to it in in, in uh, the rehab, and I heard all these people talking about these steps and God bit, and I said, oh shit, I knew I was in trouble, and folk folk used to tell you, tell you at that time the old time was uh, pretend as if. Break it until you make it. You know, they would tell you these things. But in the, on the other side of the mouth, they were saying, if you don't believe in God, you can't get sober and stay sober. You know, those sort of things. And, and I didn't, uh, by this time, I was feeling a lot better. My brain was clearing up. And I was beginning to take interest in the things that I used to before alcohol kicked me to the curb. And, and now I am interested because I'm, I'm going to AA and I'm not really interested in sobriety. I am more interested in learning how to control my drinking so that I could drink the way that I used to. But, but that, was how, that was how I uh, approached Alcoholics Anonymous. And I did the things that folk did, told me that I should do because I was afraid that uh, if I didn't, they would put me out. Don't ask me where that came from. So, so I did the big book thing. I was, I became a big book, big book thumper. You know, I could recite to you page, verse, chapter, line, and who wrote the quote and all of that good stuff. And and I was very, very active in the AA program. And but I was pretending as if, you know, it took me at least three years, maybe, for me to read the big book, I read not just the big book, but just to, to read the word God without without uh, cringing. 
it took at least three years for me to for that to go away. But but eventually that did go away. So around uh, you know, I the, I guess one of my big turning points was when I uh, I used to give out a lot of chips. I used to sponsor a lot of people. I used to talk to a lot of them, tell them you got to be honest to yourself. So I don't give a damn if you lie to me. When you start lying to yourself, you're going to be drunk before sunset. Now that's what I'm telling these folks. But I'm lying to myself all the time about this God bit. And that God did this and God will do that and all of that bit. And it got to the point around about my 17th year sobriety. I was so miserable that because I'd never told. Well, I had told one or two people, but I'd never spoken up in a meeting and told people flat out. Just like, I just don't believe in this God. You know, I would always hand around it and beat around the bush with it. But around the 17th year, I'm telling people to thy own self be true. And uh, and I'm not being true to myself. And that's when I first spoke up at a meeting and told the folk that I didn't believe in uh, didn't believe in this God. And I would never forget this lady that was sitting in front of me, and I'd known her ever since she came in, real nice lady. And she turned around and she looked at me and she said, Sam, oh, I just feel so sorry for you. And I said, oh, okay. And I just kept right on moving. But the highlight of my, uh, of my sobriety has been, I am one of those people who, when the pandemic, because I had quit going to, I had quit going to in-person meetings a few years before the pandemic, the, the, the virus hit. And the reason I had quit going was because I couldn't drive at night anymore. So the only meetings I could I would go to would be daytime meetings. So I was doing meetings online. And I hadn't, uh, but when the pandemic hit, that's when the Zoom came about and the secular meetings. You know, I don't know exactly how it was that I discovered secular meetings because uh, I had been looking at secular, trying to find something different from what I was doing. And I was, uh, it was a podcast, and I think it was out of Toronto, Canada, that was being put out. And I used to listen to that. I've only listened to it. Was I used to read that, and, and that was most interesting. And uh, and I said, well, this is something that I would really like to get into. But when the pandemic came along and Zoom come along and these these meetings like this came about, and I started going to these secular meetings, and and uh, and I said, oh boy, I said this is what I've been looking for for the last twenty plus years because I was uh, let's see, I guess I was twenty nine years sober. 28, 29 years sober when I discovered secular AA. And whatever the make of time I have been in it, I can tell you that uh, as a person, I have grown a lot more in the recovery world, in my mind, than I did in the previous years in traditional AA. So today is that, you know, I have no complaints. All I know is that what they taught, what they taught me in traditional AA, I do know from my experience that if, if uh, you can get sober and stay sober and not have to believe in this Christian God that the big book talks about or that people talk about in traditional AA. So I'm not bashing them one way or the other because there have been millions and millions of people who get sober and stay sober through traditional AA and in their own way. All I'm saying is this, is that today I am more content in my sobriety than I have been in, in previous years, and and that I contribute that solely to the uh, the secular community. 
And, and for those of you who got sober in recent years and were able or fortunate enough to find secular AA at the beginning of your journey, I, I applaud you and, and I'm kind of jealous of you because of the fact I wish I could have uh, entered into that into that field very early on. But life is what it is. I do find that regardless of which way that I went, I have found and I've learned and I practice that no matter what comes down the pipe, I don't have to take a drink. And when I say I don't have to take a drink, I mean, I just do not have to take a drink because I've had a lot of adversity over the years. I've had two granddaughters who were murdered by uh, three years apart, one in Buffalo, New York, and the other one in New Orleans, Louisiana. And I didn't have to drink. Uh, like I said, I'm the youngest of seven siblings. And five of them passed away. Actually, four of them. One of them passed away before I, uh, before I got sober. So four of them passed away. But they were old people like me. All of them were in the upper 80s. The older ones were in the 90s. But I didn't have to drink. There were lots of adversity. But before I close, I'll just mention one other thing is that, see, I used to have to hide my booze because my wife would throw it out. If she didn't throw it out, she would put water in the booze bottle. And I was so saturated with booze, I would go and pour myself a drink and drink it and smack my mouth. And uh, not even aware that I'm just drinking nothing but water until she says something. But, but, uh, but, but that used to kind of aggravate me. But when I was used to talk about hiding my booze, I guess I was about three, four years sober. You know, and I thought I was pretty clever at hiding it. And this one lady at a meeting was talking about she hid her booze as well. And she mentioned that her favorite place to hide her booze was in the vacuum cleaner bag. And I was really jealous of her because I had never thought of the vacuum cleaner bag because I was the one that did the cleaning of the house most of the time. And I thought that was really a great idea for, for a drunk to put the booze bottle in the, in the back and clean the bag so you didn't have to go out in the garage and sneak in a stash or something like that. But at any rate, I see that I've used up the majority of this hour. I don't know what I said, a damn thing that helped anybody. If it did, great. If it didn't, I stayed sober, and looking at you guys, you stayed sober this hour, because that's the bottom line of this cotton-picking this cotton-picking program is one day at a time without taking a drink. Don't give a damn how you get through that day as long as you don't take that drink. As long as I don't take that drink, I have an opportunity to make the day as good as I want to be or as bad as I want it. And with that, I am forever grateful. And thanks for inviting me, Jim. And I hope I didn't bore anybody. Thanks.